I know there's a lot of cynicism about uh, the state and about government, but I, in my view, every single state and every government is a value-laden enterprise. It's uh, it's the use of power, coercive power, but that power is always used by people who have some good in mind, uh, and it's uh, some uh, value that they think is the top the top moral value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Stephen Hicks, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Hey, thanks for the invitation, Robert. Very, very nice to have you. Uh, we're going to talk about some of my favorite topics today, and I believe some of your favorites as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, just by way of quick introduction, you are the a professor of philosophy at Rockford University, and you're also the author of several books including Eight Philosophies of Education and Explaining Postmodernism. And I thought we would start today, um, you know, we we did a little bit of outlining of our conversation uh, before starting here. And one of the broadest areas to start with and an area that has really become the central theme of this show is, I guess, what you could call the philosophy of money. Uh, and the point you made earlier that philosophy really is sort of the broadest context um, of uh, broadest context of, of knowledge, I guess you might say, when we're talking about things. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, which is a, a question I'd like to ask you, as you said, when you start asking the question, "What is money?" 
you very quickly end up talking about philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why is that? At, What's going on? Well, why is that question in a publicly interesting? Well, it is interesting the era that we are living in. In one way, we are we're fortunate with uh, Bitcoin and crypto. We're in an era of uh, a reinvention of money, at least a strong attempt at reinventing money. And that is uh, pushing us into rethinking at a very fundamental level what money is, what its value is. And that does take us into philosophical territory. And then all of the controversies about the nature of money and the value of money, we are, we are engaged in it. So in addition to very narrow technical and engineering questions about money, we are debating the politics, the value, even the epistemology and the ontology of money, that is to say, very philosophically. Now, uh, one way of illustrating the, the significance of our historical era, just as you know, the last generation or so, though, is to put it in even broader historical context, that uh, money as a widespread phenomenon is relatively new in, in human history. It's really only less than uh, 3,000 years of human history. Uh, uh, so if you go back, for example, to the Greeks, who were among the very first to introduce coinage that was then used in a widespread fashion for commercial and other purposes. Uh, but uh, you know, as, as, as wise as the Greeks were, uh, they hit upon this form of money and, and decided to use it for social purposes less than 3,000 years ago. But to put that in context, human beings, the anthropologists will tell us, have been around for maybe 300,000 years. You know, I'm just sort of making that number up because I'm not a professional anthropologist, but Homo sapiens sapiens, us with the big brain, maybe 300,000 years. That's to say, if we hit upon the use of money less than 3,000 years ago, that's to say that money came into existence less than 1% of human history. Right. And uh, uh, so that was a revolution and it occurred you know, in, a, in a few places in, uh, in the world at a particular time. And why that happened, where it happened, and when it happened is, uh, is, is fascinating. So part of the, the point then is uh, that as we go back to the Greeks for many things, the origins of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, philosophy, for example, you know, the way we do much of our theater in the modern world, science and mathematics, uh, there was something special about Greek culture that enabled it to achieve on a high level in many areas. But then money in particular, if you think about money, it's, a, it's an abstract representation of wealth, and all of that, of course, needs unpacking. But it is a, it's a cognitive achievement, and somehow it took 99% of human history <laughs> To get us to the point where we're able to operate at that level of abstraction to conceive of something like money. And then also that society had evolved to the point where it could support an institution like money, that it was big enough, that it was committed to peaceful trade enough. And of course, that's what money is primarily about. It's in a social context. We're going to trade with each other and use this abstract medium of exchange. We're going to trust each other across long distances and across time, even though we don't particularly know each other. It can only happen that money uh, becomes a phenomenon when certain social and cultural achievements have been reached as well. So 
Uh, just just to, uh, at the beginning, point out that money rests on certain cognitive achievements. It rests on certain cultural and social achievements. Uh, and understanding those in part can illuminate where we are now, that we are precisely trying to reconceptualize money uh, in this uh, the Bitcoin era, if I can use that shorthand tag, and then also to try and effect to create a, a, a new social institution uh, with certain presuppositions about trust across distance, across anonymity, and so on. So uh, I guess my shorthand tag would be that money is always very philosophical. Yeah, it's a great, great point. Um, and it's interesting that it is, I mean, most people would tend to believe that it is this consciously designed tool uh, typically something issued by government. Uh, but, you know, when you study the history of money, we actually discover that it's more of an emergent, spontaneous phenomenon. It's not something mm. that was consciously designed necessarily. Um, something more like language, right? That, you know, you would say, although I, I guess there's components of both, like we sort of design our language in a way, but but there's no central designer or central planner, right? It's just mm. spontaneously emerges and we we establish consensus on these words and phrases and or et cetera. Uh, and so well, I think uh, historically there are examples of both. So there are centrally designed uh, monies and there are bottom up or emergent monies. Uh, and so the historians of money would then trace uh, you know, and do all of the, the histories of the different cultures and so forth. So there are currencies uh, and, and forms of representing wealth that were issued by sovereigns, kings, uh, not the czars, uh, you know, but shahs and so forth, uh, you know, for more limited purposes for paying their debts, for storing their wealth. So there are examples of centrally designed, consciously designed monies, but there also are lots of examples of emergent ones. And then uh, um, uh, I think then... The more interesting issue is the value issue, which one is better to serve money's purposes. And that takes us into all of the morality about money issues and all the politics about money issues. And so again, uh, we have to get into, uh, into the value issues. Um, so uh, whether emergent is more trustworthy, whether it's more efficient, or whether on the other hand, uh, if you are suspicious of markets, as, as many people are, you're more likely to argue that a centrally designed one with government oversight is going to be better, right? Or of course, you'll have various political agendas that you want to achieve that take lots of money. So uh, even that debate is going to require that we do political philosophy and moral philosophy. Interesting. Uh, presumably, the um, emergent or spontaneous form of money had to appear before any centrally planned money though, right? Because again, it's not something that there wasn't a group of people or a guy that said, Hey, I know what we're going to do. We're going to use this medium of exchange to make the economy function better. Like it, it emerged first and then central planners, for lack of a better term, would try and control or monopolize it. So I, I guess as a question, presumably the emergent money would, would necessarily Typically, be yeah. Yeah, now my understanding of the history is that that's right. So, uh, you know, if you go before the introduction of money systems, 
there already were fairly sophisticated economies that were based on barter. And uh, uh, and uh, in a barter economy, absent money, we're still engaged in production. We're still trying to trade with each other. We still want to store our wealth uh, to control the future in various ways. Uh, also, our wealth has a symbolic value in various ways as, as, as a symbol of achievement. So all of the things that then money in a more sophisticated way uh, is trying to improve upon by introducing that medium of exchange do presuppose that you have an economy engaging in production and trade and storage of value that's sophisticated enough that somebody is going to come up with the idea of money. And then I do think it's going to be largely accidental. Uh, that's not the most uh, the best word, but whether it's going to be some private markets or private institutions or private individuals who will gradually introduce money and because of its utility, it becomes more widespread or whether some very clever individual who happens to be working for the government comes upon the same idea and uh, introduces a more uh, centralized form of money. And I don't think uh, a priori we can say uh, which one is more predominant or which one came first. And I'm open to the idea that uh, the story of money is going to be different in different parts of the world. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess my view would be that there needed to be some observation of money functioning spontaneously before someone could campaign to get people to accept any particular currency. You know, and it seems like it would be a very difficult thing to introduce if there were no past experience with it whatsoever. If you just had a pure barter economy and some guy came in and said, hey, look, we're going to start using this medium of exchange, it would just be so foreign to people. Whereas if they well, had we thought, we, yeah, for, old or something, yeah. that might work. Yeah. To me, it's not as quite as quite as clear cut as that because I can see people who are smart and clever looking at the economy uh, from a purely private commercial transactions perspective, right? So, you know, I'm I'm a pretty smart guy, and I'm doing trading three thousand years ago all over the Mediterranean. But then I've got some problems because you know that, that uh, being in a barter economy uh, um, has so. You know, I'm, I'm comparing apples and oranges, for example, so I don't have any way uniformly of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting dates in this part of the Mediterranean and, and trading it for olive oil in this other part of the Mediterranean. How do I compare those two very different commodities? Things have different rates of uh, perishing. Some things are more durable, some things are not. So how can I uh, you know, uh, translate my wealth into a more durable form? And I can imagine then someone who's a private agent wrap, uh, wrapping his mind around those problems and then coming up with some sort of intermediary thing. And then also uh, people uh, would be you know, borrowing and lending commodities and writing IOUs. And then I've got you know, some piece of you know, parchment or some lambskin with some writing on it saying, I owe you this. But then say, well, I can just transfer this IOU to someone else and he can exchange it. And so I've got a kind of a debt instrument that then sort of starts to go in the direction of being money. And as people start to see that that gets circulated around, they form a generalization on that. And all of those kinds of stories, I think there are several of those stories told in the history of money. 
But we can also start with a story uh, where you've got a barter economy, but you've got a more centralized empire or some sort of semi-feudal system, and it's not engaged in any sort of international trade, but it does have taxation. And this is an also a very old story. And so I'm a very clever tax minister for the Raja or for or whomever, and I'm trying to uh, uh, not only find ways to get more tax dollars, uh, but also to store the tax, uh, uh, the, the valuable tax things that come in, and have them in a form where I can you know, use the the tax revenues that we are acquiring in order to pay for various other things that the the Raja or the Maharaja wants us to do. And so this guy is, you know, getting chickens in this village and getting, uh, you know, the, the skins in this village and ivory tusks from this village and gathering all sorts of stuff. But this person is running into the same sorts of problems. You know, these things are differently durable. They're, uh, in some cases, apples and oranges comparisons uh, and so on. And I can imagine also that person hitting upon some sort of centralized money idea uh, coming up with that. And I know that there are in in uh, in the history of money some examples of that as well. Now uh, that then requires us to become historians, and uh, and I, I wouldn't want to prejudge the uh, the history of money's origin uh, absent doing the historical case studies. What I will say though is that once you get into uh, the last three thousand years of human history, where Economies start to get more sophisticated, and now we are into uh, you know, the Egyptians, on into the Greeks, and then on into the Romans uh, and the, the Chinese, and some of the, the, uh, the even the later Indian uh, economies, where things get sophisticated enough, and then we start to talk about money in a uh, more universal sense that we would now recognize money, and pretty much everybody is starting to hit upon it. And it becomes an international phenomenon. Uh, uh, then the issue of whether uh, one f- way of deriving money is better than the other, that takes us into all of the philosophical issues in a very pointed way. Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me. That I guess that bumps up against the David Graeber thesis in his book, Debt, First 5,000 Years, where he argued that it, were, it was those IOUs and debt instruments that were kind of like the proto-monies and... Mm-hmm. Uh, Pressure to standardize tax collections also contributed to mm. standardization of money. Right, they needed to make tax collection uh, and assessment more efficient. So money certainly helps in that respect. Uh, yep. Is it so? I, one way I've framed this before is you know it's often said that money is something like the language of value, mm. and so where we use language as an abstract representation system. For human conception, like where we actually are, you know, turning our perceptions into ideas or higher ideas, we're using it to develop conception and communicate conceptions. Money sort of does the same function, but for human action itself. Yeah, and- no, I think that's a that's a, a beautiful insight. I think money is a kind of language mm-hmm. because it is a it is a to use the formula. It's an abstract representation just as all of language is an abstract representation of something or other. So, you know, if we take, for example, you know, if I take a piece of paper and I print, you know, one dollar on it, and then it's not actually paper, it's some sort of, you know, whatever stuff, uh, fabric, 
but I take that exact same piece of paper and I print $10 on it, the, the intrinsic underlying commodity in this case, this piece of paper with some ink on it is pretty much identical. The only difference is the abstract difference between one and 10. And so there's a, a, an abstraction at work. And that then is to say, we are using arithmetic at a, at a minimum. And arithmetic already is a way of conceptualizing the world, and mathematics is uh, is a kind of a kind of language. And then uh, this is also something that, uh, particularly the Austrians, the early Austrian economists, uh, in their reflections on money, started to emphasize a lot: is uh, money's um, uh, function as an information signaling device across long distances. So, uh, by representing prices and communicating prices, it is sending information. So it is a kind of language. Yeah. And then that, of course, takes us into uh, 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 a lot of the issues about controlling language or not, mm. that if it's good news or bad news, sometimes the powers that be want to celebrate uh, or, or, or not <laughs> not not celebrate certain, uh, certain bad news, stifle bad news. And one way they try to do that is by controlling the the money signals that are going on out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that takes us into uh, issues of disinformation and, and money is part of disinformation. And what uh, if money is going to be a clear form of communication, what the preconditions of it being a clear form of communication are. So yes, absolutely, money is a money is a form of language. One analogy I like to uh, to use is uh, that money is is a lot like books. Uh, so if you think about a book, uh, you know, before we had books, printing, and the idea of collecting books, uh, people knew things and they communicated with each other, but we ran into the same problems. How do we communicate our knowledge across long distances? How do we communicate across different languages? And if you know, since knowledge is stored in the mind of someone, and when that person dies, how do we uh, store that person's knowledge so they can go past a past a given generation, and so that uh, communicatory function. When someone hits on the idea of written language that we can write down again, that requires abstract representation. And it's interesting again uh, to go back to the Greeks that the Greek alphabet was systematized as these abstract symbols: alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and so on about the same time that the Greeks hit on the widespread use of money as an abstract representation. So there's some sort of conceptual leap that's going on, uh, both in the form of written language and in the form of money that's going on in the, in the Greeks historically. Uh, but then uh, what we then say is with a book, I can abstractly represent my knowledge. That knowledge can be communicated to another person at a distance. It can be multiplied at cost. It can be stored for the long term. It can outlive me in particular. Uh, uh, so, you know, you know, say Einstein, for example. <laughs> yeah, you know, we don't have to trot Einstein around and have him talk personally to everybody. Einstein can write his ideas down. They can be multiplied. And so, just the introduction of books increases the availability of knowledge and makes us smarter. The same thing happens with respect to money because it's performing many of the same functions. It's providing this abstract representation that's uniform, that has durability, 
uh, and enables translation across various domains. And so it uh, is also a huge exponential leap for economies that adopt it in terms of their efficiency. I think that's an excellent point, and it really draws my mind to the potential implications of something like Bitcoin. Because oh, yeah. if whoever is in possession of the gold, let's say historically, is kind of like the, the universal money, presumably it would be whoever had rendered the most favors to the marketplace that earned the most gold. Mm-hmm. That would be the ideal, you know, someone that had engaged in central exchange, uh, increased the productivity of other uh, market actors in consensual trade, and they became rich in the process. So they had a lot of gold. But there's this other side to gold, which is it can be stolen, right? It can be seized. It can be violently, you can go and plunder someone and take their gold. So you're not really rendering favors in that case. The, the person in the possession of gold could indeed be a conqueror or a, a specialist in violence of some kind. Right. Yep. Whereas in a world of Bitcoin, that plundering and that conquering and that seizing is much more difficult. Yes. So the, the individuals that have the most Bitcoin in a Bitcoinized future, it would be more like that ideal where it's actually people that have gone out into the marketplace, solved problems right. for real people. And so it would be sending a, a a clearer signal into the future, right? Like, the, oh, no, absolutely, yeah. Have the most Bitcoin have actually provided the most services for humanity, right? And that's a uh, part of the philosophy of money with respect to morality, because there's a kind of conception of justice that is built into the description you just gave, uh, which was you know very nicely stated. The idea being that wealth should be, and that I'm using the word should, a result of productivity. That, that we are going to honor people who are productive, yes. and uh, uh, then in a in a social context, I'm going to trade with people. My productivity enables me to trade with other people, so that person benefits, and I also benefit. But that also then is to say, uh, if we're going to valorize trade, that dealing with people on a voluntary trading basis is good. And that uh, that is the results of trade among producers should then be reflective of the social value of that person. Uh, and all of that is a conception of justice, and uh, so that that then person uh, should be able to control and uh, keep in a secure form their resulting wealth. Yes. So uh, uh, one of the values that has to be provided by a useful form of money is securing. And then you're using the example of uh, gold, which uh, provides many values of money, but it's not perfectly secure. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, 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 vulnerable to another type of person, the predator, who is not actually producing anything uh, and is not interested in producing anything, is not interested in trading with people. And, uh, and and interested in mutually beneficial social interaction. So that person is committed to a very different value framework or a different moral framework. So one way of talking about the, the values with respect to money is in terms of, do we want to valorize the producer and the trader, or do we want to valorize the predator? Yeah. And that's already uh, to, going to take us into the morality morality in general, but that's going to have some influence on how we conceive of the morality of, of money. 
Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So it's like just by virtue of Bitcoin being harder to seize or steal, it sort of tilts the incentive landscape toward valorizing producers rather than non-producers. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah, no, nobody has a it has a problem. If, well, actually, this is this is already a controversial statement because there are lots of people who think the morality of predation is the correct morality. So we do have a, a set of arguments there, but there are also those who uh, want to argue for various reasons that people who are productive and who are traders do not have a right to their money, uh, and so they're operating from a different conception. You know, sometimes they will argue, of course, that governments have every right to tax or inflate away uh, people's wealth if it's for what they take to be a moral cause. So in addition to the predator type, uh, uh, there's another morality that is fairly widespread uh, uh, that does not want to uh, say that producers and traders keeping what they've acquired is just. They have a different conception of justice, variously called social justice or strong forms of altruism that feed into very different uh, moral evaluations of money and the institutions of money. So in the case of Bitcoin in particular, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be inescapable, uh, the debates over taxation, for example, because if historically one of the reasons why governments sometimes make up their own money or want to control the money supply is so that they can fund their projects, uh, uh, and that takes us into tax policy. The exact same debate is going to be played out in the case of uh, in the case of Bitcoin, uh, and the, it, it won't just be you know kind of predatory governments that want to uh, confiscate people's wealth at will. It's going to be some people who think they are making a moral case for saying that private monies are immoral and that only government uh, created currencies, including cryptocurrencies, are going to be moral. So those moral debates are going to have to be engaged as well. Yeah, that one seems very weak at the foundations to me because, again, if you're invoking the notion of justice, which we may perhaps simplify as people getting what they deserve, what we're saying with this idea of people being able to keep what they earned, right? Keep yes. some of the value that they've consensually created in the world with other yeah. That seems to be justice, but when you when you invoke this argument that well, government can do whatever it wants, isn't that just a might is right argument? It's like mm. a bigger stick can do whatever they want. Yeah, it certainly can be a might is right, but at the same time, uh, you do have lots of people who are true believers in government mm. uh, that they believe in government as uh, an institution of morality. But the, but the point is that their morality is very different from producers uh, uh, and traders should get to keep the, the value they accrue in a free market. Hmm. They, uh, they don't believe in individual producers. They don't believe in uh, free market as accurately representing social value. And even if they do believe in those things, they want to argue that there are other social needs that override uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the needs or the justice claims of producers, the claims of mercy and charity and various sorts of social obligations as well. So again, this takes us into the, uh, the, uh, the history of money. And if you just think of you know, all of the, 
the, the morally anti-money language that is, uh, uh, I don't want to say it's predominant, but it's very predominant in the history of money, that uh, rich people will never go to heaven, right? Uh, we're all familiar with the, you know, the phrase, uh, it'll be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Uh, the idea that uh, you are saving up your wealth against a rainy day uh, for the long term when there are other people in the here and now who have pressing needs, that you are self-interestedly concerned about your future when there are other people in the present. And so the argument that uh, charity in the immediate present uh, requires that producers uh, and traders give up what they have with those who are less wealthy. The idea that uh, you're saving money in order to uh, invest uh, 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 in someone who, uh, uh, and then what you want to do is invest in someone and that person, I mean, you might uh, make a, take an ownership position in that investment and then you're planning to make a profit uh, and then all of the morally charged language about how profit is bad and evil and wicked that redounds through history. Or you might not, uh, not take an ownership position. You might lend the person money, uh, expecting that they're going to pay you back uh, at interest. And then again, you consider uh, still to this day many parts of the world where lending money at interest is considered a great moral sin to be engaged in. So all of those things uh, indicate that there are people who are true believers, but in a very alien moral code. They're not just predators, but they certainly are not committed to production value and win-win uh, in a free market, who will then take their moral code and translate that into a politics that will be very hostile to certain forms of money or certain uses of money. Yeah. One other, uh, just, just while I'm on the point here, I can't resist uh, uh, another historical example now, when we, we mentioned the Greeks earlier, that's a bit of an overgeneralization because when you, we study the Greeks, of course, the two great contrasting uh, 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 city-states are Athens and Sparta. And it was the Athenians primarily who were cosmopolitan, sea-based, trading all over with everybody, free traders. And they introduced uh, a currency and they, they, they jealously guarded that currency and made sure that it was a, a sound money resisted any urge to debase the currency, and so it did become very widespread and a stable currency for a long time. And they uh, uh, were very interested in uh, gold, of course, but they also had some silver mines that enabled us to have widespread silver currency as well. But interestingly, the Spartans had a very different attitude toward money. The Spartans were much more uh, land-based, much more uh, authoritarian, much more militaristic, and their attitude was uh, very disdainful with respect to money, that uh, you should, if you are a good person, be uh, particularly if you are a good man, although their women also were tough and, 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 and trained, you are sacrificing for the state, service for the state, and it's a very hard, martial life. And it's those Athenians right, who are soft, and interested in the good life and the good living, who are interested in money and art and theater and so on, and they are debased human beings mm. from our elevated standard. 
And now the Spartans did recognize that they needed to have a store of value. So they did have a form of money, but for, for moral reasons, they said no Spartan is allowed to own gold or to own silver. You can hold money, but it has to be in the form of lead. Mm. Right? And so and it, it was self-consciously designed uh, to, to be cumbersome. So if you had a lot of wealth, that meant a lot of lead. But lead is uh, very difficult to store and certainly is very difficult to transport. And so that choice of a, a kind of monetary <laughs> mm-hmm. commodity is consciously guided by a moral code. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you start looking, the history of money is filled with uh, moral, and in some cases, obviously, immoral choices, depending on what your moral code is, about uh, what kind of money is good, bad, allowable, not allowable, and all of that then gets politicized as well. No, that's a great point. And this, so that it's, it really is a conflict of moral codes in a way. Mm. Um, when we try and decompose this, you know, the, I've just finished reading Atlas Shrugged. Mm, great, great book. So, <laughs> one of the best books ever. It so thoroughly destroys these this idea of appealing to the greater good or um you know the good of society these these very ephemeral uh moral appeals where we're going to violate your individual self-interest but it's for the good of the whole good of the whole you know good the group but in the reality of it is it tends to be the administrator of the state is doing something in their own self-interest to violate a citizen self-interest and representing it to be morally superior somehow when you when you try to decompose the idea of the greater good, I don't see how that could be anything other than the aggregate uh, manifestation of the free market. Because what you have in free market is individuals expressing their preferences through consensual exchange. So the greater good would be what these individual, the aggregate of what these individuals are choosing to do, how they choose to spend their labor, their time, their energy, their goods, and what they spend it on. And so when you invoke things like, oh, the free market is not good, we, there are higher moral principles or some social good we have to pursue beyond that, I, don't, I can't reconcile that in my mind. Like, What could be a greater good than what individuals are consensually in aggregate choosing for themselves, which yeah. you know, society is composed of individuals. There's no entity called society. It's just yeah. where you draw a circle around a group of individuals, what they're doing to um, satisfy their wants, essentially. So I want if, how do you consider that appeal to the greater good or the public interest or, you know, these these various uh, ephemeral collective notions we've heard talked about throughout history? How do you, how do you break those down? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that, that's very well said. And I, I agree with you. I'm a, an individualist. You know, uh, individuals are, are the agent of moral worth, of moral dignity. It's individuals who uh, need to think and act in the world and be productive and be self-responsible, and that uh, a moral society is going to respect individuals as free agents and uh, you know, encourage them to get together for you know, mutually beneficial transactions. And when we're talking about uh, any sort of social being, that is a shorthand tag for the individuals that, that, make, it, that make it up. But again, this takes us into philosophical territory, and there are, of course, people who will use this phrase, the public interest or the greater good, 
right? Or the the the, the collective need, yeah. uh, and 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 Rand is brilliant at dissecting the various forms of. Some of them again are opportunistic, and that language is a cover for more predatory types. So uh, public choice, economics, uh, James Buchanan, uh, 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 Gordon Tullock in the school there, how in many of these kind of nice sounding words are used uh, as covers for those who just want political power. Uh, that certainly is one uh, strain of analysis. Uh, if I am in a position of power with respect to other people, I can't just nakedly say, I'm taking your stuff because I want more power and I want to be what well, I want to be rich. I need to have a good news cover story. The good news cover story has to be, you know, from my bigger perspective in my seat of government, I'm overseeing the economy or larger geopolitical concerns. I can see things that you can't. So I'm speaking for the public interest and you can't. Uh, so therefore, I should have power over diverting your wealth to, uh, to various things. And so, in many cases, that is a new form of predation. But behind that, though, is uh, uh, you know, various schools of true believers in something called the collective good or, or the greater good. Mm -hmm. uh, just to make a long story short, uh, there are philosophically those who will argue that we are not first and foremost individuals, mm -hmm. uh, that we're not individual agents, that in fact we are part of a collective uh, that is society, uh, and usually this position then will say that it is the government or the state that is the vehicle that represents society as a whole, that it is the collective mouthpiece or the vehicle through which society is, is realized. Now, there's a long, a long tradition of this uh, in the modern world, coming out of thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, with his concept of the general will, and there he's quite explicitly denying any sort of individual wills. Uh, he's not an individualist in the John Locke sense or the Adam Smith sense. He said there are all of these individuals, but really all of the individuals need to come together in a collective that is the general will, and the legislator is going to uh, be the vehicle through which or to speak for this general will. And that is carried on through Hegel, uh, perhaps the most influential German philosopher of the 19th century. There are variations of it in Marxism, the uh, you know the dictatorship of the proletariat, you know the the class. There are these class interests, and again, there's a collective entity there, and it's the vanguard of the proletariat. That is the vehicle through which or the spokesman for that collective set of interests. Mm -hmm. uh, and that comes through in, uh, in, in 20th century uh, as well. So there are true believer Rousseauians, Hegelians, Marxists, and lots of other variants on that that are part and parcel of uh, you know, modern history. And all of that has to do with people's views on whether a government should be, uh, sorry, an economy should be controlled or decentralized, what uh, amount of power a government should have or not, what the tax policy should be or, or, or not. Now, there also are, though, uh, softer forms of collectivism that will say, okay, we don't want to be these radical individualists, right, saying that everybody has their own individual interests, 
And uh, we just have a free market of ideas, a free market of interests, a free market of exchange. And that just goes in any direction that it wants. And whatever the distribution is that comes out of a free market, that's what we're going to call uh, uh, the best uh, approximation of what society wants at a given time. Uh, at the same time, we don't want to be these these wholehearted collectivists, right? Who say there is kind of one collective interest that's uh, the nation or our ethnic group or our race, right? Uh, in this Hegelian or Marxist or or, or Rousseauian fashion. Uh, instead, what we want to do is split the difference by saying, well. They, we recognize that there's a kind of plurality in society, but we don't want to be too individualistic and we don't want to be too collectivistic. So we're going to uh, settle on the utilitarian standard. And this is a, with a capital U. And there the, cl the classic formulation is to say the public interest or the collective good at any given time just is the greatest good for the greatest number or the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So the idea is that we have to have a single societal good at a given time, but we're going to get there in a kind of majoritarian fashion. Mm -hmm. And so it's majority that gets to prescribe what the collective interest is for a certain amount of time. And uh, that sounds, of course, uh, not as extreme as these really strong forms of collectivism. It doesn't sound as extreme as these strong forms of individualistic, uh, to the extent that democracy sounds like a good idea and everybody is participating, uh, to the idea that the majority, uh, to the extent that we think you know, the majority can change its mind every few years so it doesn't become rigidified, to the extent that sounds like a good idea, these utilitarian forms of uh, cashing out what the collective interests have also been very popular in the uh, in the uh, in the modern uh, world, 1800s on into the 1900s, and are still with us. So again, there's going to be a lot of philosophical work that has to be done if we are going to explode the notion of a collective interest or the pu public interest uh, uh, very well. Now, certainly, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged is a great great introduction to that. James Buchanan and the Public Choice School in economics. Buchanan won the Nobel Prize for launching the school is a is a is a is a great second place to go to for an academic working out of that uh, that set of issues as well yeah it's to me i mean i'm an individualist as well i feel like if you're going to look at a complex system you need to look at it at the highest level of resolution and it's individuals that are thinking and acting and engaging with one another Sure, we're all influenced by one another, right? I don't, I don't believe in kind of this atomized individual that we're totally uh, insulated from all influences around us. You know, both environmental and interpersonal, of course, right? By both our environment and the people that surround us. But it just seems to me like any form of collectivism, no matter where you are on that spectrum, whether it is kind of a democratic or utilitarian tyranny of the majority, or you're in an absolute collectivism like uh, you know, communism or something like that, they're, they're inescapably, a, it's a lower resolution depiction than individualism. Because when you're talking about individualism, you're looking at individuals that actually compose whatever group you're talking about. So, um, and these romantic lies, I think are very interesting how they keep recurring throughout history 
you know, the Marxist romantic lie was from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Uh, more recently, we had nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And uh, Eric Weinstein has this great quote. He says that the the idealism of every age is the cover story for its greatest thefts. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Marxist Russia, it was like selling you this moral lie or this moral camouflage or romantic lie that, oh, we don't need markets and prices. We can just band together in brotherhood and national devotion and we'll push around the communist utopia. But the actual motivation behind that, at least the inferred motivation by what happened, is that they wanted to abolish private property and steal everyone's stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole nobody is safe until everybody is safe that we heard more, more recently, I would argue that was a, a romantic lie to counterfeit a bunch of currency via the central bank and confiscate a lot of wealth that way. So yeah. it just seems like this, this notion of humans fabricating really complex deceptions or psyops or propaganda, I mean, whatever you want to call these things on other people, typically, if not exclusively, exists to extract wealth from them. And so this is where, again, I think Bitcoin is interesting is it can make the extraction of wealth more difficult, risky, or expensive, then maybe we can break this cycle of humans trying to tyrannize one another or or cognitively hijack one another with these romantic lies. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, The Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector, and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version, because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Yeah, on this issue of the uh, the romantic lie or the the noble lie, there's a long history of uh, uh, justified lying for political purposes going way back to Plato. Uh, and I think it's always, though, that at a minimum, there are two factions. There are those for whom uh, it is a noble lie. They don't believe it. They are using it as a cover story, and they, they know that lots of people will uh, will buy into it. And it gives them some some traction. 
but there are many uh, who don't see it as a lie. They believe it as a truth. It might be a falsehood, mm -hmm. but they are true believers, and uh, it's often a coalition of mm -hmm. the true believers with those who uh, want to promulgate the noble lie for, uh, for the traction who come together effectively and override then those who have, in fact, the truth or, or the, uh, the value. I come back to uh, public choice. There's a there's a beautiful example uh, called the bootleggers and Baptists of of exactly this issue. And the bootleggers and Baptists story uh, applies all sorts of uh, money uh, policies, tax policies, any sort of uh, so-called do-gooder uh, type of policy. But if you think uh, to the beginnings of prohibition in the United States back in the uh, in the late teens, early early twenties. Uh, what made prohibition possible politically was exactly a coalition of bootleggers and Baptists. Mm. Now, the Baptists are true believers. They think that uh, drinking alcohol is a sin. People should not be uh, uh, consuming uh, you know, beer, wine, spirits, and so forth. Uh, it, it is morally corruption, physically debilitating. And because they believe that morally, they think they have the moral high ground, but they then also want to politicize their morality and say, this is for the good of society as a whole. This is in the public interest. We want to make it a, a, a law that alcohol cannot be consumed in the society. But at the same time, you have the, uh, the bootleggers, and there was organized crime at that era who was uh, engaged in, at a low level at this point, uh, making of illegal liquors and smuggling and so on. But they are smart enough to realize that if prohibition comes into effect, then that's going to be great for business for them because what will then happen is all of the legal distilleries will be put out of business by the police, by the FBI, and they, organized crime, have no problem with <laughs> operating outside of the law. So in effect, it's going to put all of their competitors out of business. They already have the, uh, the capital infrastructure and the organizational know-how uh, to do so. And so it's going to be great profits for them. So what they did was, and this is documented history, was meet with the Baptists. And the Baptists met with representatives of organization organized crime to say, let's get together and form a coalition to get both prohibition passed. Right. Now, once you see that pattern in place, uh, uh, you start to see examples of it all over the place. So uh, I think you're right that there always is a noble lie, and a lot of people buy into the noble lie. So a lot of people who I would say are often young and naive and perhaps uh, a little bit uh, afraid of taking full responsibility for their lives who think, wow, it's nice to think that uh, you know, the state is going to provide for me in some sort of socialist utopia and I can do whatever I want. Those are going to be the, the Baptists. You know, that sounds like just nice. Everybody is going to be looked after, uh, including me. But there also are the, the the bootleggers in this case, those who are politically savvy, who realize that if we have a centralized econ economy, somebody's going to have power over that centralized economy, and that's going to be me. And so uh, some sort of communist ideology is a very useful cover story for me to gather the reins of power. Those two coalitions coming together can be a formidable a social activism force. That's fascinating. Uh, I actually heard that for the first time recently, and and it's very interesting in the context of our conversation here. So then, mm -hmm. the believers in that 
story are the Baptists, right? They believe prohibition. Yes. Alcohol is bad. We need prohibition. But aren't they, in, in collaborating with the bootleggers, again, even unknowingly, are they engaging in a kind of self-deception? Because they're thinking that, oh, if we pass this law that alcohol is prohibited, then people will stop drinking. But the reality is the bootlegger is going to keep providing them alcohol just at, you know, a prohibition premium. So they'll extract even more profit uh, than it would if it was legal. And mm -hmm. so the Baptists are kind of like trusting the wolves to guard the chicken coop kind of thing, right? They're, they're feeding themselves. Yeah. Well, you can argue that it's a, it can be a kind of naivete that, that's at work there. And certainly there, there's going to be some level of that. A certain amount of short-sightedness uh, is going to be there. But it also can just be a, a miscalculation. They might argue uh, that they think you know the FBI and the local police are going to be more powerful than organized crime. Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps uh, a closer in time analogy would be to consider our current drug wars, where it's uh, in many cases a similar sort of bootleggers and Baptists. We still have lots of people who will make the argument: we need to step up the drug war, maintain the drug war, spend even more money on the drug war because drugs are bad. They are undercutting the moral fabric of society and they are either oblivious to uh, that, uh, you know, turning neighborhoods over to the drug warriors and international drug cartels and so on. Uh, all they see is drugs bad, use political force, get rid of it. Uh, so the same dynamic I think is at work in, in that case. This reminds me of the Cobra problem too, where there's the it might be a plan. The old example of there were too many cobras in the village, so they outlawed, or no, they, they set up a reward. Every dead cobra you turned in, they were rewarded monetarily. Right. This the the uh, cobra breeders. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. they're trying to get rid of the cobras, but you actually ended up creating an incentive for people to breed cobras. So it's it, sure. That's all right. Yeah. Got a little bit of uh, in, uh, infrastructure, set up your cobra farm, and you've got a nice steady stream of income. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So very, very interesting tangent there. If we come back to money as like this, I guess the latest layer in many layers of, of human achievement, right? We had, you know, obviously spoken language, written language, mathematics, probably even taxation and money kind of emerges as like the latest layer of these cognitive or cultural achievements. What is it, in your estimation, why is it that money is so philosophically controversial? Is it because it is, is it because it's new? Is it because it touches so many of these different domains? Is it because it's misunderstood? Like, why is there so much philosophical controversy surrounding uh, the idea of money? Yeah, I think, I think there's a, a few things that would need to be said here. I think one is that money is a cognitive achievement. Mm -hmm. So to start thinking about abstractions and representations uh, is already to go up a level of cognitive proficiency. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to be able to say, I've got some tomatoes here, I've got some chickens there, I've got a, you know, a, a bushel of potatoes in cold storage. That's what wealth is. I know where that comes from. I know what it what it, what it means. Uh, but then to start thinking about money 
you know, I've got a piece of silver that maybe I can exchange for something in the next town. Mm -hmm. uh, that requires of me to think at an abstract level. Mm -hmm. uh, and then gold, and then paper money, and various other kinds of commodities. And I think one blunt thing that we have to say is that some people are not comfortable with abstractions. Mm -hmm. They are very concrete in their thinking, and they get lost in abstractions. Another level is to start thinking about economies as a whole. So I, if I'm going to think about money, I have to start thinking about, uh, because money is not going to come into existence in a very small village that's more or less sufficient. And I'm, I know everybody I'm trading with, and we all meet at the market once a week to exchange our, our goods, to start thinking about there are a hundred villages and there's a big annual market, uh, and that uh, I can think about all of the trades that are going to go on at that higher level of abstraction, and then people from faraway lands who speak differently from the way we do are going to come to this market once in a while, and we're going to be engaging in exchanges with them. We don't exactly know what they're bringing and what they want, and that this wealth can, uh, uh, can, uh, can last. All of that bigger picture thinking about uh, business and economies does require that one scale out in one thinking. And again, some people are not comfortable with or perhaps even able to scale out in their thinking. So from their perspective, the more concrete they are in their thinking, the more mysterious and magical and strange uh, money starts to seem. They start to say things like, that's not real wealth. Real wealth is something that you can eat, something that you can touch, something that you can see. There's something made up about this money. There's something fake about this money. There's something unreal about this money. So there are a large number of cognitive issues that I think uh, that come in. Um, so then it only gets worse, though, the more sophisticated an economy gets, because it's not just that we now have you know, 100 villages getting together once a year and trading, and so someone comes up with this thing for, for good. We start to have banks that come into existence that store money. And then uh, banks that are sitting on large amounts of money start uh, you know, lending money out. They start making investments. And so they have bond instruments and they have, uh, uh, they have stock certificate kinds of interests. And they start talking about uh, interest rates. And uh, and all of these things are conceptually uh, more abstract to think about, and it's another level of abstraction altogether. Uh, and then the economy then starts to get even even bigger. And so I think in many cases, uh, people who are against uh, uh, stock markets, they're against bonds, they're against bankers. They uh, it's because they don't understand them. Uh, it seems like somehow these guys have a whole bunch of money. Uh, and seem to be living good lifestyles. I have no clue what it is that they're doing. It doesn't seem to me that they are uh, adding any value to, uh, they're just uh, making paper profits or pushing paper around, or they are sitting in their cushy air-conditioned offices while I'm out there working on the factory floor and sweating in the, sweating in the fields. So there is a whole cognitive hierarchy that needs to be addressed. And I think a certain amount of it just comes from people who are low on the cognitive spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think another 
uh, related point, though, just is that uh, this is going to, you know, Marxism is going to be one form of this. There are people who will recognize that there is some value to money, but they are really bothered by the fact that some people who don't seem to be engaged in physical labor uh, are getting a whole lot of money, while other people who are seem to be working just as hard physically and perhaps even harder are ending up with large amounts of money. So there, it's partly not quite understanding the value that's added by people who are working in these very abstract markets and very sophisticated markets. But there's also another premise that uh, uh, that one's value or one's worth should be commensurate with the amount of work that one is putting in by some uh, physically measurable uh, standard. So, you know, I go into the office eight hours a day. This guy goes into the office eight hours a day. Uh, we should be roughly the same uh, in our wealth. I'm working in the factory or in the fields eight or 10 hours a day. The value that accrues to me should be roughly commensurate. So that comes out in a kind of, you know, it's a labor theory of value if you, if you push on it. But it comes out in a kind of egalitarianism, and that can very easily then be moralized against those who have large amounts of money. So an egalitarian morality, uh, not being very high up on the cognitive scale, those two things I think often can work together to explain uh, a lot of anti-money. Now, that's, to, I think, just a start because there are lots of people who are very smart and very clever, and they understand money. They also understand uh, that in many cases, it's intellectual labor that's creating more value and they're still opposed, but that uh, takes us into different philosophical territory. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that those abstractions that are initially perhaps uncomfortable become concretized over time in the minds of users, though. Because I think, you know, 200 years ago, probably, 150, 200 years ago, people knew gold was money. Right, like, like to have gold, to take physical receipt of gold was a definitive, concrete form of money. Yes, and then you know later, gold would be abstracted into the dollar, for instance, to make it more transactable. And now today, people don't understand the value of gold. Like I would, I would argue, people have a more widespread appreciation for the value of the dollar. Right, holding the paper dollar, like this is real money. That even then they do gold, or they may think that the dollar is still pegged to gold somehow. Sure. It's almost like that abstraction, although people might get uncomfortable with abstractions, if you keep introducing it long enough and using it long enough, eventually it starts being taken for granted, right? The dollar is the dollar. Yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of social learning that can, that, that goes on and does go on. So yes. Yeah. And, and we'll still find that. Um, so if you think about dollars versus Bitcoin, uh, there, there are a lot of people who are just going to be in favor of dollars uh, just because they are more comfortable with it. Right. So, and so there, there is a learning curve that's going to have to go up if people are going to, uh, to, to learn about Bitcoin and get more comfortable with it. Of course, it doesn't have to be Bitcoins. If people start to become educated and uncertain about the long-term value of the dollar, then they will become re-educated about gold, silver, and other possible commodities as well. Right. So there's a lot of variability and ongoing social learning. Is the 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 tendency towards the egalitarian morality, the labor theory of value, 
by those perhaps lower down the cognitive hierarchy. Is this perhaps they just they're discounting the value of knowledge work itself? You know, they think that all the value oh, yeah. is in the toil, but really most of the value is created in the coordination of the toil. Right. Yes. The, what the classic debunking of the labor theory of value is you can pay a guy to dig a hole and fill it back up all day long, right? And that's a lot of labor being expended, but no value is being created. Right. Is that what it is? It's just a misapprehension of the nature of knowledge or the value of knowledge work? I think, yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it. I remember uh, after I finished my undergraduate degree, I'd run out of money. So I went to work uh, in construction for a couple of years. And uh, um, there was a construction company that manufactured some prefabricated units and then installed them in the field. Most of the time I was out in the field installing, but when things were short, I would work in the factory. When I was in the factory, um, uh, there was a great deal of resentment uh, against the guys who were working in the office. They knew that the guys who were working in the office, and it, it came out uh, very clearly. You know, those guys aren't doing real work. They are you know, just sitting at a desk, pushing paper around. They're in the air condition. We're the ones who are really adding value here. We're making the thing. And uh, there was a genuine belief to some level that uh, uh, that those guys were parasites, parasitic on those who are doing real labor. And then what's also interesting, though, is when you go into offices, though, people then, they do office work and they start to learn, oh, wait, this really is work. You know, I'm doing coordination work and uh, uh, what the guys out in the factory are doing, that's also work, but they wouldn't be able to do that work if we weren't selling and accounting and marketing and uh, and, and designing and so on. Uh, so there's better understanding of the, the division of labor, the value added on both sides of the division of labor, uh, and, and so less hostility. But among the office workers also, though, there's a great deal of hostility toward Wall Street, say, or bankers. And it's the exact same thing. They were the same. We're the ones who are working for the construction company, actually designing and selling and making things. And those guys uh, on Wall Street, right, or those guys in the banks, they're not making anything. They're just sitting on their piles of money, moving the money around, and somehow they're ending up with huge amounts of wealth. So the, you could say you know, the people working in the office are higher up the cognitive scale. They're seeing their picture and their value estimations are, are, are better, but there still is exactly the same problem. And these weren't necessarily bad people. Uh, they just were not able to go up or hadn't gone up the other level to see the higher level coordination that's going on in the banks and uh, and, uh, and and Wall Street. Now, I think that's uh, a little overstated. I think uh, um, there is a, a laziness element that this is often a cover story for, because even the guys on the factory floor, you know, they they recognize that uh, maybe they didn't have a temperament for it, they weren't interested, but they did recognize that people who were working in the office you know, had gone to university and gotten an engineering degree, or had gone and gotten an accounting degree, and you know that, that they had worked hard, and that they probably were doing something, but these were guys who did not want to have to do that kind of work. Uh, uh, and so part of it, I think was, you know, I'm making less money. I'm stuck in this crummy factory job and they know it's because there's a certain amount of laziness and personal choice that they've made. So there's a kind of cover that's going on there as well, mm. uh, or, uh, or 
for those less desirable character traits. I see. Yeah. So, well, until you walk a walk the mile in my shoes, right? Kind of thing. You just don't. Well, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I say even even the, if I could just give one example, even that my my university, um, at least the one I've been at the the longest, but I've been at, at at several universities, and even among the professoriate, and these are you know, by and large people who are very smart. They've all got PhDs, but uh, the the idea of the division of labor and understanding that even to make a university work, there are many. Uh, types of labor, you know, people in marketing, people in accounting, you know, what goes on in the provost office, what goes on and, and so forth, uh, that, 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 you know, we're the ones who are doing the real work. We're doing the real teaching. And in some sense, the entire administration is parasitic mm. on those of us who are engaged in the real business of learning. And then the fact that in some cases, uh, those people are making more money and have more power, uh, they, they don't understand the value, but also they're resentful of the value, and they get hardened into that. And so then the, in many institutions, uh, I've been a part of a couple of them, uh, it becomes very hardened into you know faculty versus administration, us versus them, uh, battles over money and uh, and power, and a lot of it is driven again by this, this, uh, this same pathology we're talking about. And these are smart people. Yeah, and there is, I mean, to be devil's advocate, there is a shred of truth in that because mm -hmm. the extent to which you can minimize fixed costs or overhead or administrative costs, the business actually is more efficient, right? So mm -hmm. if you have overblown overhead or admin costs, then it can't. No, I'm not going to uh, argue for uh, or in any way defend the bloat of colleges. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So that's right. And I think there'd be a strong argument there um, that fiat has something to do with that, that there's more mm -hmm. compliance, there's more political maneuvering that has to take place. So you have an increasingly large administrative overhead necessary to comply with this increasingly large regulatory apparatus that fiat creates, right? Just the end. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And so there, so I, I mean, I guess in defense of the, the professors in this case or the workers on the factory floor or the people working in the office, looking at Wall Street, there is sort of a shred of truth there that you do want to actually minimize non-value added activities. I don't, no, I don't want to say non-value added. Uh, they're they're not directly contributing to production, right? If hmm. you know, we we used to keep the, for instance, accounting used to be done by hand in large ledgers, right? You needed probably ten people to do the accounting for a certain size business that one guy can do today with Microsoft Excel and QuickBooks. Mm -hmm. You know, so you, you can you can make admin more efficient through by leverage technology, and that's optimal for the business. Sure, and what you're trying to do is minimize that that overhead burden. So I can see where so, I'm using. I guess is my point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, business efficiency uh, is going to be a, a moving target. It has uh, you know, there, there are innovations in management, in uh, in conceptualization of technologies, and so on. Uh, yeah, so there's always going to be some inefficiencies and uh, 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 people who are cottoning onto the existence of those inefficiencies are going to be rightfully resentful of them. Uh -huh. This probably is a good segue into our next topic, which is going to be the cultural issues on the moral status of business itself. Mm. Uh, I think there are, are many people that have 
develop the notion that business is inherently unethical or you know uh, yeah, a long history of that yes yeah like something like a zero-sum game perhaps rather than you know i think properly understood business tends to be a positive sum game right it enables trade and uh the the expansion of productivity and expanded division of labor all of these things that contribute to aggregate uh growth in the standards of living and, and innovation etc um and one one area where this is perhaps most pronounced is the area of lending and borrowing uh you mentioned earlier that you know there are regions that have forbade lo- loaning money at interest for instance yeah what are your thoughts about that like what is as far as the moral status of business, I guess, in general, and then lending and borrowing more specifically, how do you wrestle with the the moral aspects of those activities? Yeah. No, that's a, that's, that's a very apt question. And uh, it's, an, it's an ancient question, and it's still with us in, uh, in form, even though we live in perhaps the most business-friendly uh, culture right, of all time, the last couple of hundred years or so still. We have a, a huge number of philosophically motivated objections to to uh, to business. So, if you take uh, you know the, the the specific issue of lending and borrowing, and already that is something uh, um, that requires some success in productivity. You're not in a position to lend unless you've some sort of surplus property that you don't need in the immediate in the immediate short term. So, already. Uh, there has been some accomplishment by individuals or, or social networking that has enabled lending and lending and borrowing. But uh, the, the first uh, uh, and obvious candidates for hostility toward lending and borrowing are the uh, the the, uh, the the religious traditions, mm-hmm. and two out of the three Western liberal traditions, uh, the the three being uh, you know Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam. Uh, two out of the three have been incredibly hostile to lending and borrowing for the majority of their history. Now, for various reasons, there's nothing in Judaism that has made it uh, hostile theologically to lending and borrowing, which is why, or one of the reasons why historically uh, Jews uh, became financiers in parts of the world where lending and borrowing were theologically impossible and before separation of church and state politically impossible lending and borrowing were forbidden uh, for, for theological theological reasons the story of Christianity is uh, is more mixed here uh, uh, for the first uh, perhaps 1500 years of its history as 1500 years of Christian history lending and borrowing, uh, were uh, were considered immoral, and uh, they they were, were they were bad, uh, f- uh, and, and, and uh, the reason for that was you know, theological. Um, you know, partly it will be anecdotal. When Jesus goes into the temple where it's being used by uh, an off days as a market, yeah. and he goes to one table, yeah, and, and and upsets it and uh, and says, "Get out of here! You are defiling a holy place." It's the table of the money lenders, so they are singled out uh, for for special uh, program. And then there's a more general argument that if you've got excess money and somebody needs your money, then Christian charity requires that you give that money to the person. Not well, I will lend you the money and make a profit 
off of this lending. That was considered uh, unchristian. And you see uh, the great debates over this as we get into the 1300s and the 1400s. Uh, early capitalism starts to emerge, particularly in Florence uh, and uh, and in Venice and in some of the other uh, Hanseatic leagues, or so the, the trading networks. And there, uh, you've got some very clever people setting up. They're doing international trade, and they're starting then to develop all of the international financial instruments and credit instruments and monetary instruments and so on. Uh, and the lending and borrowing has to go on, short-term, long-term financing and so on. But you read the letters and the diaries of many of these financiers. They're brilliant financiers like Cosimo de' Medici, but they are in anguish morally over the fate of their souls because they recognize that their business success, and it seems to them like they're doing something great and wonderful and brilliant uh, for business. But at the same time, they believe in their souls that they are doing something immoral. And how am I going to explain this to God when I uh, when I meet my my maker? So the 1300s, 1400s, within Christendom, they are basically, basically wrestling with their souls, and then they, in effect, decide on a compromise. Okay, fine, we can allow lending and uh, lending and borrowing and then at least in uh, uh, Christian Europe uh, uh, capitalism is then let further out of the bag and and can take off but interestingly uh, if you go further east into Islam which has the same prohibition on on uh, on lending and borrowing uh, uh, and various Islamic scholars and people in business also wrestle with exactly this issue because uh, they're engaged in international trade and uh, and, and so on. But uh, Islam has officially uh, uh, stuck to its guns on this issue and prohibited lending it issue. That's not to say there aren't all sorts of clever workarounds that they will engage in, uh, but still officially it's, uh, it is, it's, uh, it's forbidden. Now, partly this is driven by, uh, by moral concerns. You're supposed to be engaging in charity uh, uh, to the point where it hurts. Uh, uh, rather than uh, you know trying to make profits and, and piling up riches and so forth, partly it is driven by uh, more metaphysical concerns. The idea that uh, you know life is short; you're only here for a few decades. You should not, if you're a decent person, be concerned with material wealth and, and basically money is uh, you know to, to buy a good life here in the earth. You should be focused on the state of your soul and getting ready to meet your maker. So right from the beginning, if you are interested in business and money, you are just your value framework is completely inverted and you are you are a you are a bad person. You're interested in materialistic things instead of in uh, in uh, in uh, uh, spiritual things. So uh, this is a long then history that if you are interested in money, if you are interested in material good living, if you're interested in making a profit, if you are doing lending and borrowing, and all of these things are baked into Western culture for centuries, and they are still with us, uh, uh, then you're going to have hostile attitudes toward business and business and money. Now, what typically happens then is, as we get into the modern world, we become much more secular, more individualistic, more worldly. Uh, many of the religions have made their compromises with respect to money and capital and profit and so on, and they will engage in various halfway houses. So, the, so, so some will argue, no, money and business are not outright immoral, and that you are only a moral person to the extent that you are 
you know, taking a vow of poverty and, uh, and not at all interested in materialistic things and giving away all of your wealth and so forth, uh, that we'll just say that uh, money and business are amoral. They are morally neutral. Uh, and if you then you know, engage in business and you don't cheat people and you create some wealth, we're not going to give you moral credit for that. That's still an amoral enterprise. But if you then take that wealth and give it away in the form of charity, then you become a good person. Mm. Uh, uh, so we still then will have a morality that is not giving any moral credit to business as business, but only seeing it as a means to an end uh, that is a non-individualistic end. You're serving the collective interest or the public interest or some sort of charitable need of other people who have not who have not made not made the wealth. So uh, that then is a kind of halfway house, but then at the same time, the position that you're articulating and the one that I believe is really a much more modern position that says, uh, no, you know, actually, if you are the person who is self-responsibility and uh, committed to it, you get up in the morning and you go to work and you create value in the world, you're a good person. Uh, we, we should honor you for being someone who's creating value in the world and self-responsibly looking after yourself and trading with other people on a win-win mutually beneficial base. That's, that's justice. That's morality. That's uh, social tolerance. That's social peace. And so there are the third position to round that out is the, the ones that want to argue that business is uh, inherently moral. And that's still a fairly hard sell in, uh, in a broader culture, in business ethics and theological circles and some uh, particularly left-wing political circles that, uh, that still want to see business as, uh, as distasteful at best. Yeah. As you know, as tolerable as long as it delivers the monetary goods, or as something that is to be outright banned and controlled. Yeah, there's a, again Ayn Rand here. I think just makes such a strong argument that it, it to engage in mutual consensual exchange, right? To get up, to go to work, add value to the world, trade with other self-responsible people that are doing the same hmm. thing. If if your morality is premise or as let's say the the metric of your morality is human flourishing then i don't see how you can argue that's not a moral activity because you're laying like we've described these layers right that money developed on top of right yes in language written language all the things that we had to develop these layers of civilization to get to the point that money even functioned you're sort of helping to lay that sediment when you go to work and create something right you're building houses or Absolutely. yeah and so that capital that you're creating, that serves other people, like by definition, right? They're paying for it. And it's win-win. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I feel pretty strongly that I would advocate that entrepreneurship is one of the most moral things you can do. Oh, yeah. It's well, heavily demonized. <laughs> like even the word entrepreneur is kind of a dirty word in, in many circles. Uh, and I liked your framing of money and business as sort of amoral because they are really just tools at the end of the day. Like these are means to an end, right? We're trying to satisfy wants and that's what these tools provide. So I look at it like if a hammer, right? A hammer is not inherently immoral or positively moral. It's an amoral thing, right? You can use it to mm -hmm. something moral like build a house or fix something, or you can use it to kill somebody, something that would be mm -hmm. 
or typically immoral. So the morality seems to be rooted in the actual actor rather than any particular tool like money or business or, or any of these other constructs that we use. Now, I uh, tend to say, yes, money, is, money and business right, are a means to an end. Uh, but it's not only the end that has significance. I think it also is uh, as a means, mm -hmm. if it's a, uh, that it has certain uh, inherent value in doing so. Mm -hmm. So uh, so we, we might say, <clears throat> let's try an analogy to, uh, we've got, I've got some art on, the, on behind me. We might say you know, that the purpose of art is contemplation. So after the artwork is made, we can then view it mm -hmm. and get some value from that. Mm -hmm. But it's also the case that if you talk to artists, the making of the art is also an inherently value-laden activity, right? So, uh, it, and I would then want to extend that to other things. So you, the the act of making, so making a hammer, making a house, making a business, planting a field, it that's constitutes us as value-seeking beings, and that has embedded in it uh, virtues of character. Uh, 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 valorizable behaviors right. that are also worthy in, in themselves and as means to an end. So uh, business is both a constitutive value and a functional value, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in itself valuable and as a means to an end. Both as a, mean, a means to an end and an end in and of itself. And I would, that, I, I would argue that free market capitalism is actually what frees us up to discover what form of work we individually find meaningful enough to be an end of itself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. An ideal world is one in which people are working on the things that they are, they would work on if money were no object. You know, yes. rather than trying to go to this job to outpace inflation or pay bills, like a job you don't like, obviously right. the output of something you don't like is not going to be as high quality as engaging in an exact. That's right. So that's where I would say things like communism, where they're assigning roles or jobs to you versus free market capitalism, where you're free to sort of engage in whatever activity uh, <clears throat> find enjoyable and can make profitable for yourself, uh, yes. creates a better world. In, in yeah. a, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And uh, just, you know, in the modern world with the rise of uh, you know, free market capitalism, the, the fact that there are you know, not... When you're a little kid, you know maybe a dozen jobs that you can choose from. Now there are hundreds and thousands of different jobs that you can choose from, so you can customize yourself and, and choose the job that suits you. And then the entrepreneurial angle that we have a culture that valorizes entrepreneurism. If you don't like any of those hundreds of thousands of jobs, well, just make up your own job, right. and uh, you know, we have the social resources in order to enable you to do so. Now. To valorize that, though, is to come back to that theme of the morality of individualism. That uh, that is exactly what uh, what we are striving for, and just uh, uh, that is going to be controversial. And you, you mentioned that uh, entrepreneurship is a dirty word in some social circles, but it's a dirty word precisely for the reasons that make you think it's a clean and healthy word. You know, those who want to say. Uh, we should just let people choose whatever it is that they want to do and go their own way. Well, 
that's not moral. That's uh, it's not just that it's anarchic and we're not going to have social coordination, but that's a kind of self-indulgence. And these are people who come into their thinking about economics and politics from a more collectivized perspective. Mm-hmm. That what makes you a good person is pulling your weight in the social order. You know, so we have a society, and society has certain needs, and you should be adapting yourself to fit those social needs. It's not a matter of what do I feel like doing. I want to become an artist, or I want to become a philosopher, uh, and so I'm going to pursue that. The question from this moral perspective is, does society need more artists? Does society need more philosophers? And if the answer is no, you should set that aside and do what wise leader says you should be doing. That's what used to be a moral person. It seems like a hangover from our tribal past or something, right? Oh yeah, it is a hangover in modern in in modern form. Yes, absolutely. And the irony of that is because the concern is, oh, if you just let people do that, it's self-indulgent, it's uncoordinated, it's unsustainable. We need one power telling people what to do. The irony is that free markets actually are the most coordinated and sustainable economic systems, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Clear price. Well, from arguing from the Austrian tradition, obviously there's a lot baked into this, but when price signals are clear and consumers are are very clearly expressing their preferences through accurate prices. Yes. You can't just go and self-indulgently be an artist, right? You have to produce something of value that people are willing to pay money for. They're willing to give some of their labor to acquire the things that you create. Yeah. So that, I guess it's this idea, it comes out of centralization and decentralization, right? That maybe this idea that we need some central control committee versus, no, we don't. We actually just need to let people sort of autonomously self-organize. And um, yes. So there's, again, a long philosophical tradition there. Of course, there are some people who, when they start thinking earlier, um, uh, decentralization just seems like a non-starter. It just seems like it's going to come out in, in chaos, and they're immediately more comfortable with some sort of centralizing authority. Uh, and that can be just for for cognitive reasons. Uh, it can also be for political power reasons. I like the idea of being in charge, uh, and so I want there to be a central authority that's going to give me a whole lot of uh, wealth and power. So if we think of lots of politicians who like the idea when they are young of uh, getting into a government agency that's going to give them immediately a budget with ten million or a hundred million or a billion dollars to spend. Uh, they don't want to then say, oh, I can become an entrepreneur and create $100 million worth of value and then spend that money. I just want to have immediately the power to do so. So centralization is uh, is uh, is attractive to them. But it also is, uh, again, uh, there's a parallel to, or if we think of economic systems and uh, kind of emergent economic systems, bottom-up coordination, et cetera, et cetera, the exact same uh, uh, moves take place in biology in the evolution versus creationism or evolution versus intelligent design. How are we going to get complex order? Now, in that case, we already have the complex order biologically in the world, so we're trying to explain. But there, it's a huge conceptual leap for many people to say that without a central authority, God in this case, to have a central plan that he's imposed on the universe, the whole biological uh, uh, sphere would just fall apart. Uh, uh, To go the other way to say we don't necessarily have a complex economy yet, but if we leave free agents to their own devices, a complex coordinated economy will emerge. 
that seems a pipe dream, but it's the same intellectual issue in different domains. Yeah, that's that's really interesting too. That maybe there is this crossover of that theological notion of creationism that we're trying to. What, that's so silly because a lot of the central planners would be proclaimed secularists, right? That's but right. trying to play God in a way. It's like, no, yeah. we need, well, God, I need to be the little micro God that organizes the thing. Otherwise, it's going to be exactly. anarchy. That's right. Yeah. And in many cases, it's driven by the same thing. Uh, you know, if you know, people are too incompetent to look after themselves, uh, so they need a wise father figure to organize them and tell them what to do and make sure they share their toys appropriately and give them all the moral rules. You find the same thing in the economic central planners uh, with a, a very disdainful view of most people. Most people would just remain mired in poverty and incompetence. And so they need a smart person, someone like me, to organize them and give them jobs and tell them what to do and make sure that the whole thing goes that goes smoothly. So the people who want to be you know, the, the shepherd of the flock in the, uh, in the religious context, these are the people who want to be the central planners in the economic context. Yeah, and I'm I'm reminded here of Hayek's excellent paper, The Use of Knowledge in Society. Yeah, yeah you, a classic. Yeah, it just makes a very compelling argument that just the nature of knowledge itself, if we're going to act on it in a way that's it's it's most timely and most relevant, that you need to depend on individual actors responding to the circumstances that are particular to their time and place, rather than trying to pass all that information into a central control authority, have it be approved of a chain of command, and then have edicts and orders come back down and be disseminated back out. Like by the time that's happened, the world's changed and moved on. Like the the, the knowledge yeah. is a little bit less timely. So, right. um, I so think yeah, the uh, the dispersal of knowledge and the coordination of knowledge that Hayek is talking about that can happen in a free market, that's, that's certainly that's an important insight. He's building on, on von Mises. Uh, von yes. Mises and- now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, A multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today. 
to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. One other aspect, though, of that is a is a value judgment because uh, if we start talking about dispersed markets down to the level of individuals, it's individuals knowing their particular circumstances, but also individuals having their own value preferences, mm-hmm. which are different from other individuals. Yes. And that value preferences issue is often contested by central planners. Mm-hmm. So they might be willing to grant the cognitive point, but they will then say, no, we shouldn't be indulging individual variations and individual preferences. There are uniform values that are objective and intrinsic that everyone shares, and these are the ones that we central planners can design, or we can identify them and identify the system without needing to worry about that individuation level of value. So they, uh, they, they'll, they'll deny that yeah. Again, another aspect of individualism. Implicit in that central planner retort, though, is this infantilization of individuals. Because, like, it, you're basically saying people don't know what's good for them. Like, individuals don't yeah. know what's best for them. I know better. So yeah. it's like, say you know what you want to buy and the preferences you want to express in the world. Yeah, actually wrong. I, central planner, know better. And so that, right. that but they have lots of data for that. You know, they, the staple is a Florida man, right? Or all of the, uh, the the people who do ridiculous things and blow their money and spend their their the money on things that they shouldn't be so paternalists and these are the milder forms of the collectivists do find lots of raw material there, but it's not just the people who are infantile. What they will there will be a kind of self indulgence version there. They will say, well, uh, you know, I'm just going to make up an example. So everybody needs potatoes and and, and eats French fries. Say that's universal across the United States. So as there are some regional differences where these people like to eat their uh, their their, uh, <clears throat> their, uh, their French fries with salt on them. These ones like have vinegar on them. These ones like to dip them in mayonnaise. These ones like ketchup. These ones like bar- barbecue sauce. So you've got these five different regions. And so the Hayekian insight is then going to be, well, let's just leave, decentralize it to all of the individual preferences and then all of those commodities will be distributed around the society in optimal amounts, right? And so on. But the paternalists and the central planners are going to say, look, the important thing is that everybody needs potatoes. Maybe they need French fries, but all that other stuff is luxuries. Right? We're not, we don't have to be a, you know, vinegar or, or mayonnaise or ketchup. Until everybody has enough potatoes to eat, the market shouldn't be indulging itself in these luxury goods. And we are the central planners who know better what society as a whole needs, as opposed to individuals who are going to indulge themselves. So that moralizing also comes into play prominently. Which is the central planner imprinting or even superimposing their value judgments on the value exactly. of individuals. Yeah. And just doesn't, that, that doesn't, you're, 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 you're making the claim, you're discounting the sovereignty of individuals. You're saying people aren't yes. exactly or yes. themselves, so we need to choose for them. And I don't see how that argument could ever hold water. Yeah. Well, uh, then we are set to go back to the long history of moral philosophers and political philosophers and activists who have been very happy with overriding the sovereignty of the individual on what they think is uh, is moralistic grounds. I guess we're segueing very nicely into the next topic, which was the mm-hmm. proper role of government. What is uh, yeah. the proper role of government? I think Rothbard defined 
the state, to be more specific here, not government, the state as the social apparatus of coercion, compulsion, and violence. So we need a central monopoly on force to counteract any incursions uh, uh, against one another, right? If someone coerces another person or steals from another person or defrauds another person, they need recourse to some social apparatus that can uh, seek retribution or, or seek justice on their behalf. Um, what, and, and in my reading of, of history, it's like the, the proper philosophical scope of government is to defend life, liberty, and property. I don't think government or the state really should do anything beyond that whatsoever. Um, and these two words, the government and the state, I guess I should decompose those a little bit. The state is more of that entity that extracts wealth via taxation, right? Non-consensual exchange. Whereas government can be even something like a housing. Uh, if you have a, if you live in a neighborhood and there's a, what's it called? A housing authority, um, a housing committee. And the, the term escapes me now where people get together and say, there's certain standards for this neighborhood, right? Your windows mm. need to be this big and have a broken down car in your front yard. These are the colors, et cetera, et cetera. There's like a consensual agreement among the inhabitants of that neighborhood that this is how we're going to govern the standards of our neighborhood. That's something more like a government, whereas a state is a, a body that actually imposes rules and then you can't opt out of it necessarily. So like in the United States, if you try to opt out, if you say, I don't like the services I'm receiving from the US government, I'm going to leave to another country. Well, if you have above a $2 million net worth, they impose an exit tax on you. So there's this inherent imposition by the state and uh, whereas government can be more of a voluntary type organization. Uh, sorry, long-winded question, but what in your view is like the proper role of government or the state in context of what we're talking about? Yeah. So just, just on the, the terminology issue, state and government are used variable, variably in the, uh, the political philosophy literature. Sometimes it's a, a level of abstraction issue where the state is more abstract, government is the particular institution. Uh, sometimes it's a, a raid along a timeline. You know, governments, particular governments come and go, and the individuals who constitute and populate the various offices uh, are, are, are more time-bound, whereas the state has a, a an eternity right, uh, that, that goes along. And then also uh, uh, in the ind more individualistic and more collectivistic literature, they're often used differently as, as well. But uh, we can define a state... Uh, neutrally uh, as the institution that has a monopoly on the use of force in a given jurisdiction, often a geographical area, well, that, that's starting to change in, in modern, modern times. But it is this issue of the monopoly on force or coercion, compulsion, and, and, and so on. And so uh, state, uh, the government then is distinguished from other kinds of social institutions that uh, uh, are allowed to use, say, force in self-defense or for more limited purposes, but they don't have the monopoly uh, 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 and they don't have a, over the jurisdiction in a more limited limited form. So then uh, this is where every political philosophy, though, first uh, has to become a moral philosophy because it has to then answer the question, under what circumstances is it legitimate to use force. 
And that's where your moral philosophy, because then you have to cite some value that authorizes or justifies the state in using force in whatever cases you think that it's used force. And so uh, all of the different moral philosophies then give different answers to that question. If you are committed to a predatory moral philosophy, you just think it's all a jungle, might makes right. If that's your, your moral philosophy, then you are going to say the state uh, just has power and it's authorized to use force for whatever purposes the current uh, controllers of the state are, are able to do so. If you're an advocate of strong altruism and you think that everybody should be sacrificing their wealth for the good of everybody else, then you're going to see the state is authorized to redistribute wealth from some people to other people because that's your top moral value. If you think uh, uh, people should see themselves morally as part of a collective unit and serving that collective unit, then you're going to uh, answer that the state can properly use force to make sure that people are fulfilling their collective duties, whatever whatever they are. If you think, as, as you think and as I think, that people are moral agents or self-responsible who should uh, be able to keep what they have earned uh, and traded for and be free to live their lives in their pers own pursuit of happiness, then you're going to say the state is authorized to use force in protection of those particular values. So I know there's a lot of cynicism about uh, the state and about government, but I, in my view, every single state and every government is a value-laden enterprise. It's, uh, it's the use of power, coercive power, but that power is always used by people who have some good in mind, uh, and it's uh, some uh, value that they think is the top, the top moral value. Now, this then means that uh, political philosophy debates ultimately do become moral philosophy debates, and there are, we're often having arguments about politics and particular issues. But it's not really about politics. It's always some value, moral value that people think is uh, is at stake, and that's where the real traction is. So, my view, uh, positively, is uh, uh, the one that you articulated. One that uh, uh, Rand, Hayek, Mises, and the other are. I, I do think there is a role for a state. It's uh, uh, it's properly definable that we do need an institution that is entitled to use force in cases where. Other people or some individuals have initiated force against other people, threatening their lives or killing them, trying to enslave them or kidnapping them. That's to say, violating their liberty or uh, or, or taking their property uh, against their their will. Uh, that's an that's an injustice, uh, and that it is better that those rights to life, liberty, property be defined objectively uh, and universally. Uh, and that rather than having any sort of vigilante justice or just do it yourself, uh, that it's better to have a centralized agency where those principles have been defined that looks after those things. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really well said. Um, how, how can we properly restrain the state to stay within its moral scope? Mm. Rather, I mean... I guess perhaps regardless of <clears throat> the state, I mean, I guess if you think the state has absolutely absolute power, then that question is not applicable. But if you think the state needs to defend life, liberty, and property, obviously it needs to be restrained to stay within that scope and you know anything in between. What is the proper mechanism by which yeah. can restrain the state such that it does not exceed its 
mandate to defend your life, liberty, and property, or or whatever the mandate may be. Right. Now, I know uh, that's a, a metaphor, the word mechanism, but it's never going to be a a mechanism in the in the literal sense. And I know I'm not putting literal words in your mouth because that's the idea that in some sense, once we've set the machine up, it can go of itself automatically. But it's always the case that uh, human beings are volitional agents. And so it has to be a matter of will, it has to be a matter of belief, and it has to be a matter of commitment that most people in a society in a given generation uh, agree upon, and they succeed in convincing a majority of people in the next generation to agree upon. So that's the only way uh, the only way that it can work. But the problem that we have when it comes to politics always, I think, is a moral problem because in every generation, we have people who go into politics or this is too uh, too brief, but I think it's it's a good shorthand answer for one of three reasons. There are those who have a healthy conception of justice that they do believe in individual rights. People should be have the right to life, liberty, uh, property, pursuit of happiness. They believe in some sort of a democratic, republican, free market economy, and so they go into government uh, to try to advance that conception, but also. In every generation, there always are going to be people who go into government for a power motive. Mm -hmm. They don't believe in people having life, liberty, and rights. They just want to be in control. Mm -hmm. They want to make rules. They want to have power. They want to have prestige. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really what's driving them. And of course, they will sometimes say that they are you know, fans of the Constitution and the Declaration, or they will say whatever it is that they think will give them more power. But really, those are just cover stories, and they are just in it, to, in it, in it for power, uh, uh, and they are amoral from the perspective of those committed to life, liberty, and and property. So they are they want power, they want power for themselves, and uh, that's one enemy. And those people need to be constrained, and so we always have to be vigilant. Uh, the act of politicians and the culture at large with respect to those. Predatory, power-lusting types of types of politicians. I think they are, a, uh, you know, there's, I don't want to be deterministic, but I think they're a constant in in uh, in human affairs. Mm -hmm. They'll always have every generation. But there's another moral type who go into power for more altruistic and collectivistic reasons. They do see they do want power, but they see it as a means to end, and they are not power lusters themselves you know, for personal aggrandizement. They do believe that we should have a more economically egalitarian society, or they believe that government has a lot of power and access to a lot of wealth, and they want to redistribute that wealth in a way that they think is more moral, altruistically, and collectivistically. They don't believe in individual life, liberty, and property. They think those are of a lower order morality, or they are immoral. And uh, again, I don't think that this is deterministic, but they are a constant. They're certainly a significant portion of our culture, and they also go into uh, politics in every in every generation. So the predators, the, uh, the the advocates of individualism, the advocates of altruism and collectivism, those three types, and it's always a three-way battle in the political space in any generation. Uh, but it's also uh, an ongoing battle in the in the culture. Yeah. So the the if we're talking about how to restrain or at least make sure that the the implementation of the government or the state stays 
as it is intended to be or stays on track, doesn't exceed its scope. Is it then, as you said, it's about convincing people which one is which way is right, right? Is it individualism? Is it collectivism? Is it raw power, authoritarianism? Is it this ongoing battle then for the minds of the youth? Because we're constantly trying to educate the next generation about what works best. And yeah, it is. It always is. And that's why I think it's uh, philosophy is the most important discipline mm. uh, that, you know, philosophical education of getting people able to uh, uh, understand what the issues are, understand the arguments for and against each of those positions and coming out on what we think is the right side. That's the ongoing work in every generation. So, uh, you know, if, for example, believing in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, that can't just be formulaic words that we recite without understanding what they mean. Uh, to the extent that, that they just become formulaic words, then nobody's going to fight for those. Sure. And then people who are committed to other moral agendas who uh, are full of vim and vigor and fire, they will win in the, in the next generation. So it's an ongoing philosophical uh, education. So that's why I think the philosophy is important. Uh, education is uh, absolutely important. And uh, that means not only formal schooling, but uh, perhaps even more importantly, parenting. Uh, you know, the examples that parents set in the formal lessons or the explicit lessons that parents teach to kids when they are young, they uh, they, they predict the future outcome of, of the child. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the long sweep of history, uh, uh, you know, the best reading of history is uh, why uh, history goes in this direction, societies go in that direction over the course of generations. Uh, we can track that largely by what philosophical battles were fought in the previous generation and who won. Uh, so for example, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, by the time the founding fathers were being educated. This is in the middle part of the 1700s, 1740s, 50s, and 60s. Are the guys who became so they are reading widely. They're intellectually ambitious. They're going to college. They are also politically ambitious, and so on. They were reading largely uh, British Enlightenment philosophy, and to some extent, French Enlightenment philosophy. That was the philosophy that had won out in the late 1600s and on into the early 1700s, and uh, they were convinced by it, and they uh, they succeeded. The story then, unfortunately, uh, from my perspective, is that by the time we get to the 1800s, it's German philosophy that has become uh, world-class, British philosophy, American philosophy is declining. Uh, the most powerful minds philosophically in the world are people like Hegel, Nietzsche, uh, to a lesser extent, Karl Marx, but they are operating in a very different, collectivized, violent force, uh, group versus group, power state, uh, philosophical context, and they were successful in the uh, 19th century, and uh, that uh, goes a long way to explaining their prominence on into the 20th century. In earlier eras, it's various sorts of religious philosophy, sometimes Islamic uh, you know the fascination of the the Arabic and Persian and North African worlds, and, and their uh, battles back and forth between Islamic theology and Greek and Roman philosophy is is also fascinating. Islamic golden ages or Arab golden ages. Uh, there's a story that's to be told there 
with respect to the Renaissance, uh, it's always uh, philosophy in one or two generations. Then you see the cultural and political manifestations a generation or two later. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, that that proverbial cycle comes to mind. You know, that strong men make good times. Good times make mm. weak. Weak men make hard times. Hard times make strong men, and the cycle repeats. Yeah, is it? A disease of decadence that we, as you said, with life, liberty, and property, it's one thing to be a founding father and like have been oppressed in England and know the value of life, liberty, and property in the founding of the Constitutional Republic of the United States, right? It's it's in your bones. Yeah. <clears throat> after a few, after you've created those strong men that have created good times after a few generations, perhaps it becomes just a trope, right? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You don't really need it. Yeah. And then you get you know, it gives way to the implementation of the Fed and all these things that start to dismantle the constitutional republic. We don't even call ourselves a constitutional republic anymore. We call ourselves a democracy. Mm -hmm. Say that's a testament to how far we have deviated from our foundational principles. Yeah. Cycle or trapped in, and is there any way out of that cycle, or is this just something human humanity is doomed to repeat? Now, I think the uh, that cycle uh, it's uh, it's well said, well crafted, and so on. And, and there's a there's a moral to the story there. I think it works in in some cases, in limited cases, but I think there are lots of uh, family examples that belie it. So there's nothing deterministic about it. I think also at the cultural level, uh, there are examples that belie it as well. So I don't think we want to say deterministically that if you have uh, hard times in the first case, and so then you've got the first generation, you know, the, the 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 man and the woman, they work really hard and build up, uh, and then the next generation becomes soft. That turns on the parenting style of the previous generation. If they spoil the kids, right? That yes, the next generation is going to be soft and they will dissipate the family wealth as well. But spoiling your kids, there's nothing necessary about that, and so there's enough known about good parenting. And lots of families don't spoil their kids. They have affluence, but they raise their kids well. And those kids go off to have good, self-responsible, productive lives as well. I think the same thing happens at the uh, the more social level. We might then say, well, we started in poverty. We build up this great economic engine. We become rich. And then uh, we start to get soft and we feel sorry for poorer people. So we create a vast welfare state and a bureaucracy to support it. Uh, and then uh, the demographics shift in, and then we have a captured bureaucratic class that uh, just metastasizes and becomes bigger and bigger and never gives up its power. And then we get a demoralized uh, uh, welfare class that never earns the habits of thinking and the moral character to, to get itself out of poverty. And they then just overwhelm the producers and the whole thing uh, collapses. Well, I, uh, that's a possible life cycle, but again, we don't have to create a welfare state. We don't have to have a metastasizing uh, bureaucratic. Those are choices that we can make. We can learn from history not to engage in that problem again. Part of the problem is, uh, uh, I think partly it's uh, it's philosophical. Um, uh, you know, we do have these ongoing debates, all the ones that we've been talking about, and uh, we can win or we can lose. Maybe we should talk about postmodernism and the woke as another example if we uh, if we end up having having some time, but it's also the case uh, that we still are relatively early in historical time. 
again, if we think about how long the United States has been around, it's now 200 and what, 50 years or so, or maybe 260 years. I'm from Canada originally, so we're about 160 years. These are still very young countries. Uh, uh, and we're still going up the learning curve, I would want to say, so to speak. We also are going, uh, so we can learn more quickly than previous generations about the mistakes of the past. We also do have a great deal of wealth that we have created, which means the mistakes that we've made, we have the wealth available to correct them. We also have the technologies that can help us to get up the learning curve and help us correct the mistakes as well. So with the right kind of mindset, we have the tools and the wealth in order to correct course. Uh, and so at the same time, those tools and the wealth insulate us from a lot of the pathologies of society that uh, that we are very rightly concerned with right now. So I don't want to be too deterministic or pessimistic about it. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a very broad generalization, but it does seem there's something to it where- Oh, uh, sure. A trope, a tro- well, hopefully not a trope. Uh, a phrase we often use on this show is that pain is information. So that like mm. when you go through the experience of learning the value of life, liberty, and property by going through the American Revolution, for instance, you you understand it at a much deeper level than having to yeah. read it in a history book, for instance. Yeah, sure. So it seemed like there is this, uh, I don't know, as we become more, we develop more economic abundance and therefore decadence, we kind of forget the lessons of history and we haven't mm. read them. And that cycle seems to be somewhat realistic, although not deterministic, as you're saying. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it has to be made real to kids in every single generation. Right? So parents and teachers or educators more broadly, uh, yeah, you cannot keep kids insulated from every possible pain, discomfort, failure, and so on. Right. At the same time, uh, there's a huge judgment call here. You don't want to inflict so much of those things. <laughs> That uh, that you destroy the child physically, right, and or and or psychologically. So it's a it's a judgment call, yeah. uh, and it is going to be uh, individualized to each kid, and also it's going to be uh, individualized to each parent's circumstances. And also, there is going to be some social relativity depending on the wealth and technology of your your society in general. What what the pressing lessons of each generation yeah. are, of course, yeah. And there's that natural parental impulse to want to give your children a better life than you had. So it's not, it it's not a blame game, really. It just seems to be kind of this pattern. Uh, yeah, okay. I would say I'm, I'm well attuned to that, but I noticed, uh, you know, in, in me and a parent, it, uh, it, it it's a constant issue because if you've got a little bit extra, you want your kid to have it. You see your kid frustrated, you want to do it for your kid. You know, there's something, uh, some pain you can take away, you want that pain to go away and you have to you have to uh, restrain yourself rather a lot. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, um, but I do have kind of one last question and then hopefully would love to have you back on to continue through uh, some of yeah. down. We didn't make it that far on the outline, but uh, <laughs> start. Uh, some people have described Bitcoin as the separation of money and state. And so I asked you earlier about the proper way to constrain the expansion of government or the state. And uh, Hayek has that famous quote about, he didn't think we would ever take the 
the money out of the hands of government until by some sly roundabout way we introduce something that they yeah. can't yep. uh, Many Bitcoiners believe Bitcoin is that sly roundabout way. How do you view, I guess first, do you consider Bitcoin to be the separation of money and state? And then do you view it as a contributing factor to restraining government to a, a scope that serves the interest of humanity rather than violates uh yeah. yeah, interest. No, uh, philosophically, I am uh, a big fan of. I have to say, a fan because I'm not a specialist yet in this edge. I'm kind of an educated amateur when it comes to Bitcoin. But yeah. the uh, sorry, aren't we all? It's well, too new, okay, too new to be a, it's a, a new technology. But I would say, with respect to the morality of Bitcoin, uh, total thumbs up, two thumbs up. I think it's a beautiful invention, all of the things that we want money to be. We want it to be uniform. Uh, we want it to be universal. We want it to be portable. We want it to be secure. Uh, we want it not to be subject to counterfeit and to inflation so that the value of money is maintained. All of those, which I would say are uh, economic values of money, but at the same time, moral values uh, of money. We were talking earlier uh, Bitcoin is a praiseworthy technical innovation for precisely uh, those reasons. Now, to the extent uh, that we make them the the economic, right, or uh, more narrowly the business case, more broadly the economic case, that it succeeds in solving the technical problems and that it also succeeds in marketing itself mm -hmm. to a sufficient number of people who have the buy-in so that it becomes enough of a currency uh, that it can then actually be used as a store of value, as a as a, uh, as a as a medium of exchange. Uh, so it actually becomes a workable business tool. I'm totally uh, the business case and the economic case for 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 Bitcoin. When we turn to politics, I uh, uh, here I have some reservations, but I am mostly on board with the uh, the politics of of Bitcoin. I, uh, I, uh, I do think there's a political risk to Bitcoin that uh, people who are fans of central governments and centralized currencies who want to maintain their monopolies on money, they uh, will, uh, many of them, try to squash Bitcoin if they possibly can because they see it as a threat to their political aspirations. So the political risk is that some of those governments will succeed at, at, at doing so. At the same time, there are, what, 190 or so different countries around the world. And uh, so as long as uh, some few of them, hopefully some of the major governments around the world, sign on to Bitcoin, don't try to squash it, then I think uh, that political risk can be avoided. Uh, and so I'm, I'm I'm comfortable on that, but I haven't researched it uh, enough to, uh, to to sign on entirely. And I do also see, you know, for for various governments around the world, them using or seeing Bitcoin as a political ally. So if there are other major currencies that are uh, controlled by political entities that they are politically opposed to, they would be then. Uh, kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They would be willing to support Bitcoin and uh, encourage its flourishing because it's going to undermine 
the currency of their political national enemy. So lots of interesting political things uh, that can happen at a, at a foreign policy level. At the same time, uh, and this is uh, just uh, uh, echoing what, uh, what you were saying a minute ago, I do think also Bitcoin has great promise as, as, a, uh, as a check on fiat currency. Right now, we do have a monopolistic currency, which I think is uh, uh, the idea of a monopoly on currency, I think is immoral, and I think it's bad politics. Uh, and it is uh, uh, obviously something that is subject to abuse. We've seen the uh, the abuse of fiat currency for well over a century now. So uh, to the extent that Bitcoin is an alternative currency, it is uh, in a position to uh, lessen the power of the fiat currency and lessen the uh, the capacity for those abuses, you know, the inflations and controls of interest rates that are artificial and so therefore not reflective of actual uh, market realities and, uh, and economic needs. So I think uh, political, uh, politically, as a tool of reform, Bitcoin also is very promising. Yeah, lots of great points there. Uh, Stephen, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, great. Well, let's do it again, as you said. Yes, we, we shall, we shall. I uh, appreciate you going down the philosophical rabbit holes with me. I know my audience really enjoys this. So. Great, great. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, I uh, I would say two things. One is uh, go at YouTube, uh, just C-E-E video channel. Uh, a lot of my center for ethics and entrepreneurship work in business ethics, entrepreneurship related work. So a lot of our videos, audio books, interviews are there. A lot of my material is there. And then uh, my personal professional website is uh, stephenhicks.org. And uh, just when I blog about things or my various course materials and many of my publications are posted there. So those are the things I would say first. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this again. And we'll- A real pleasure. Uh, I love philosophy. I love money. So nice to spend some time there. Yeah. Likewise. All right.